Romans chapter 4, we made it. Romans chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. And I titled the message, Abraham Believed in Jesus. He did. And this portion of Scripture, as all of them are, is so amazing. We think that we've gone through some really deep portions of Scripture, and we really have. Chapter 3 in Romans is an amazing chapter, which we took a lot of time to go through. But it just keeps getting better. And the Apostle Paul has now made his case, but now he's going to go in depth into a lot of the things that he's been talking about. And he's going to prove to his fellow Jew that he's writing to, this objector that he you know, is imagining is there, who with all these prejudices, because it was him and he knows it, he's going to prove to them that faith in Jesus Christ is not a new thing. It's always been, and it always will be, and that's the one way of salvation, now and forevermore. It's amazing, and I don't know if any of you had the chance to read ahead and really think about what the Apostle Paul was saying. So, in order to do this, what we want to do is we want to go back to verse 31 for a moment, and then we'll move ahead into verses 1 through 5. But before we do that, we need to share a few things first in our setup. See, Jesus, as we know, has been put forth as the propitiation, as the substitution. He's upheld, like the Apostle Paul has been telling us, for all to see what the plan is and has always been. It's no longer a foreshadowing of things to come. It has come. Jesus has come. It's the but now message here. The cross then becomes the focal point and the centrality of saving faith as it has always been. This has always been the plan. It's nothing new. And this is what the Apostle Paul has set out to demonstrate here. Now the Apostle Paul, in a sense, has been holding a light up on this great salvation for us all to see. And now he brings into view the Old Testament and the New Testament to combine them demonstrating how this saving faith was always the plan. We have seen that boasting has been excluded. There's no law-keeping. There's no good deeds that we can do to earn it. And he's also proved that there is not more than one way to heaven. As we have talked about, you can't come up this side of the mountain and us this side of the mountain and reach the same peak. There is one God, as he has stated, over all, which we saw in their Shema prayer. And he made one way for all to come to him. So one God, one way. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're anything else, a Gentile, salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Believing in what he has done on the cross, it's not my faith that saves me. It's faith in what he's done. It's belief in what he's done and why he has done it. It is the faith that He has given to me and you to believe what He's actually done for us on the cross. Therefore, the things that we'll look at today about the cross is that it establishes the law. The cross eliminates human effort, and the cross is the only way of salvation for all time. And it seems as though we've reviewed these things, but as we talked about, He goes from negative to positive, negative to positive, he continues on with these things because he knows that we're human beings. 
and that we need to be reminded over and over. I have discovered that in my own life. We've talked about this a lot about the Apostle Peter. After all these years of teaching one way, he goes right back into a portion of his old life, and we can do the same thing, don't we? We do it all the time. I know I do. I mean, I have sat up here and taught, not sad, but stood up here and taught many times about being critical of others and everything, and then inevitably sometimes I'll hear something or see something about a pastor and I'll say something because I'm being critical of them. And I hate that about myself. I don't want to do that. We were talking, uh, Isaac and I were talking this morning about uh, how he and others in our fellowship will go to other churches and do worship. And it's so good to hear what's going on in their church. It's really good. Just like the Apostle Paul would hear reports from different churches. And I love to hear what's going on because I miss these guys. I miss being with those pastors, serving with those pastors who now have different fellowships. I mean, I really love to hang out with those guys. We served for a while together and developed a relationship, and I love to hear what's going on. But we also have to focus on what the Lord's doing here as well. So we want to be able to bless what's going on in other fellowships. And it's so good, to again, to have these guys come and share what's happening. Anyway, getting off track here. So we come to verse 31 as we back up a little bit here. And let's read verse 31, and let's read through chapter 4 through verse 5 together. Then we'll get into it. It says in verse 31 of chapter 3 of Romans, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And we'll leave it right there. So the Apostle Paul is saying, do we make void the law through faith? May it not be. May Geneta, remember? No, 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 no. It cannot be this way. No, this new life I have in Christ establishes the law. Can you imagine these guys are all confused? Wait a minute. You're saying law and you're not law. and What is it? All mixed up, but that's not what he's doing here. What he's saying is that what we have in Christ establishes the law. In fact, it firms it up. You cannot separate law and grace. They go together. Salvation always establishes the law. It never abolishes it. The program has never been changed. It's been this way from the beginning, and this is what Paul is setting out to prove. We do a disservice to God's Word when we attempt to separate Old Testament and New Testament. When we do away, we think, with the Old Testament. Yes, there are 400 years of silence, they're called, or the intertestamental period. But the Old Testament and the New Testament 
are all part of the entire Testament that we have today. It sheds light on everything so well. In fact, the New Testament enhances what the Old Testament already said. It brings it to light. It sets it forth. It brings the cross of Christ to the forefront, but it was always there. I'm aware of those who've said that we don't even need the Old Testament. Have you heard this? There are people that teach that. There are churches that will say, we're not going to teach the Old Testament anymore. We're just going to teach the New because that's all we need. But how many times do the New Testament writers reach back into the Old Testament and bring it forward? How can we do away with that? No, we can't. But because the two are separated, many think that they're not linked. But they're tied together and interwoven more than we sometimes even imagine. And it's amazing. We're going to see that today. Remember with me what we already shared. What some have come to believe. They have stated, along with this invisible objector that Paul is using, that the law is done away with. So what good is it then? That's what some of them have said. Then some say, what has replaced it is faith. All we need is faith now. Because we couldn't do it the other way, so God made it easier. And His plan was so hard that He made it easier, and all we have to do is have faith and believe in Jesus. But that's not, that's not the plan. We've discussed this in previous messages, that some have taught that the law was too hard, so God had to change the plan. And now He made things easier for us, and all we have to do is have faith. But that can't be right, can it? It can't be. Why? Because then all faith has become is a work. And I can boast that I have faith. I have faith. You don't have faith. It's a boast. Yet boasting we know is what? It's excluded. So it can't be that. It can't be that. We proved with Paul that was, a fa- that was false by using Old Testament examples. If you go back to the other messages that we've taught. And I want so back bad to reach back, but we got to move forward. That the cross of Christ was always the plan, it was always the design. We've seen that back all the way in Genesis chapter 3. But what he's going to do is he's going to pull out more from Genesis that we may have never even seen. Pretty amazing. Sin seemed to have passed over, remember? God seemed to have passed over sins of the past. Didn't seem to deal with them, but he was always dealing with them. This is what the Apostle Paul had told us before that it seemed like he was passing over sin. But that wasn't the case. Jesus is set forth now. He's brought forward. And what was always the plan has been brought forth and made plain, set up for all of us to see. Clearly, remember, he was placarded, set up before us. And so Jesus did not abolish the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. And this was the Apostle Paul's point in verse 31 of chapter 3, which we're looking at, which we didn't fully complete last time we were together. That's why I want to go over it, because I think there's some very, and there are some very important things here. Now, the requirement of sin is what? Is death, right? The requirement of sin is death, and the penalty had to be paid once and for all. Every Not perpetual every year, but once for all. 
One man ushered in sin, the first Adam. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, forgave sin. Just as one man brought in sin or ushered it in, one man brings salvation, Jesus Christ, for all of us. And it had to be a perfect sacrifice, didn't it? Had to be perfect. Someone, it had to be someone without sin, without spot, without blemish. Now, could anybody keep that? Can any human meet that code? Well, we know no human can meet that because Adam was born in what? Perfection. And what happened with Adam? He sinned. So he's born in perfection and he sinned. So the only one qualified would have to be what? Divine and human, which is God himself. Jesus is God incarnate. This is what the Bible teaches. Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23 says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Of course, Matthew quoting the prophet Isaiah, right? In chapter 7, verse 14. Amazing. Not a new plan of salvation, an ongoing way of salvation through faith. This is what Paul is setting out to prove in such a magnificent way. We don't abolish the law. He upholds the law. He fulfills it. The law. The law is that system of legislation given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel. The entire body of the law is found where? Exodus chapter 20 through Exodus 31. Let's read that together. No, I'm just kidding. We find it in Leviticus. We find it in Deuteronomy. And its essence is embodied where? In the Ten Commandments. The law. But remember with me, the law was not given as a means of what? Salvation. It was never given as a means of salvation. This is where it got all tripped up. Listen with me what Acts says in Acts 13, 38 and 39. Now catch this here. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. It's right there. In other words, Jesus saves and the law condemns. It was designed to show us our sinfulness and that it couldn't be kept. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. In other words, you cannot keep it. The strength of it points out your sin. It's supposed to magnify the fact that you cannot do it. That's the point of it. With the entire intention here to drive everyone into the loving arms of a merciful God. And Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills its strict requirements in his life and in his death. One man has commented that God kept 
it seemed like God kept piling on the rules over and over to even more to show them that they can't do it. And yet they continued to try to keep it and miss the entire point. It was supposed to make them helpless, but they became proud, thinking that everything they did made them right. Can we do that too? Can we live like that as Christians, thinking that, oh, look at how I'm living. I must be a Christian because I'm doing these things. Look at what I'm doing. We've talked about that over and over. Listen, it did not do away with any of the law, this salvation, this cross, but it establishes the law. There's no separation. Remember this great scripture that Jesus said. Remember this great word Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18. And here is where everything hinges. Do not think, he says, that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This scripture right here, this statement right here, has great spiritual significance. It represents the heart of Jesus' message. It demonstrates his relationship to the law and to God. And he's saying, I'm not abolishing it. I'm perfecting it. That it, he, he was saying that he's not presenting this rival system to the law and the prophets, but true fulfillment of what they were saying. It's not a new system. It's not a rival system, he's saying. He came to show that they were not dealing with an angry old God in the Old Testament and now a new loving God and Savior in the New Testament, which we think of all the time. We separate the two sometimes. All scriptures have always demonstrated a gracious and loving God. When Jesus arrived on scene, he found his word, what? Encrusted with all of man-made traditions. And what he was attempting to do was scrape all of that away and go down into the truth that has always been there. To scrape all that crust to reveal his true word. When in this scripture in Matthew, he says, jot, it is the word yod, and it represents the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. When he says tittle, it was a stroke of the Hebrew letter. Like for us, it would be the dot of an I or the crossing of a T or an apostrophe. A better example would be that one stroke that changes a capital F to a capital E. That one little stroke. These things are important because one change of a letter can change the meaning of a word, changes the meaning of a sentence completely or a thought completely. And in other words, Jesus was saying that he came to fulfill the law to a T perfectly and nothing would be changed. He would fulfill the law by obeying it perfectly and will fulfill the prophet's predictions of the Messiah and his kingdom. Nothing would be changed. Jesus would do it perfectly. This was his point. And so we step back and we think, well, how do we know that Jesus fulfilled it all and kept the law perfectly? I mean, is there some type of list? Can't you imagine somebody outside of listening to this think to himself, well, where's the list of what Jesus did so I can believe in him 
that it was perfectly done. Every little thing. Well, we know he fulfilled over 300 prophecies found in the Bible. We know he was circumcised on the eighth day as the law declared, the Bible tells us. We know he went down and was subject to his parents when he was 12. But is there some type of list outlining for us everything he did so that we know? Well, there's no list that we could check off necessarily, but I think there's a list we could use, and it really only has one thing on it. And what is that? To please God the Father in every aspect of his life. Done in his heart. Do you remember when Jesus rejected the traditions of the Pharisees? Six different occasions he made comments like, You have heard it was said, you shall not do this. But I say to you, this is the way it should be. Talking about murders, talking about adultery, talking about several different things. And what he was saying was he was not changing God's law. He was telling them what it really meant. What the law really meant. The Lord said the commandment extended not only to the act itself, but also to the internal attitude behind the act. And that's what they didn't grasp. It's like he was saying, of course murder is wrong, but the anger prompting the act is also as wrong as plunging in a knife. Man, that brings it home. There is not necessarily a list given to us of Jesus keeping the law perfectly outwardly. I mean, there could possibly be, but remember what the scripture tells us in John 21, 24 and 25. What does it tell us? About John, he says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. We don't know everything that Jesus did here. We know the essence. But personally, I don't think we need a checklist of things Jesus did to ensure he kept the law perfectly. Why? Well, remember, the wages of sin is what? Death. If Jesus had any sin, he could not bring eternal salvation, correct? He could not shed his blood. His death could not be used to take away the sting of death. But we know that's not true. Listen to these scriptures. I'll give you four of them. I could give you a lot. But let me just give you four. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if Jesus wasn't sinless and wasn't perfect, could He do this? He could not do this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 1 Peter 2.22 For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. Perfection. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without what? 
sin. I don't know about you, but this is all the proof that I need. The infallible word of God. But for me, I suppose the most compelling list anyone would ever need of Jesus fulfilling the law perfectly, it would have this one statement on the list, and it's from God himself, found in Matthew 3.17 when Jesus was being baptized. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. Somebody hit that young man, please. (laughs) In whom I am well pleased. Jesus, dying on his cross, took on the wrath of God due to us. And it's by believing through faith in what he has done and why he did it that saves us. It is for anyone who believes. And it is through faith in all that he is and has done that saves me and you. And we are made righteous, not perfect. We're not perfect in this way of salvation. Remember what it is? It's a forensic or a legal term. We are justified, made right in his eyes. We're not perfect, but legally in his eyes, we are righteous, we are saved, we are justified when we receive him. It's our legal status when we accept Christ that we are made right with God in his eyes. So Jesus fulfills the law through his life on earth and death on the cross. And now we come to chapter 4, 1 and 2. Let's look at 1 and 2 together. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Jesus' life and death on the cross puts forth Jesus and fulfills the law. The cross of Christ then eliminates what? Any human effort that I can make. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ dying on the cross and us believing in what he has done. This is what Paul has proved, yet is ready now to set out and prove it again in even a better fashion, I believe. And look at how he uses to do it. Abraham and King David, these Old Testament saints, used to prove that salvation is apart from any human effort. Now this would be amazing to the Jew to hear this. So Paul now asks some questions. And he brings in Abraham, and he brings in King David, as we will see. And Abraham, Abraham's in the first verses 1 through 5, and then he moves to David, and then he'll go back to Abraham again. And it's this brilliant piece of argumentation. Look how he phrases verse 1. Abraham, our father, our father Abraham, a patriarch of the faith, the father of the nation. Naturally, this is going to grab their attention. They're proud of this fact. They go back to it often. Remember when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, and they're getting defensive, and their fallback was Abraham. And they said in John 8, 33, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. And in verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. So there is a proud stance that they are taking here. Their confidence is in Abraham. 
And that's a good thing because the Apostle Paul uses it to make a point. If he's your father, look at what he did. Therefore, shouldn't you do the same thing? Well, what is that? So guys, what did Abraham accomplish in the flesh? That's what he's asking. What did he accomplish in the flesh? Anything? In their eyes, Abraham was what? He's this righteous man. He's a pious man. He's a religious man. A good man who did the right things before God all the time. Therefore, God blessed him. This was the thought. This is what we can get caught up in today all the time. So Paul's asking them some questions. If Abraham was a good man and a law keeper and earned God's favor, then Abraham would have something to boast about, wouldn't he? But see, you remember boasting is done away with. I've already proved this to you. Oh, yeah. It's like he's backing them up in the corner again. Amazing. But we just prove there's no boasting, using our own scriptures to do so. So how can it be that the Father of our nation earned this salvation in the flesh or through works if there's no boasting? And you cannot before God, he says. The cross of Christ abolishes all works, eliminates human effort, and I'm going to prove it to you through the lives of Abraham and King David. But how? How am I going to do this? How does this prove this point? Well, we go on to verse 3, and it's amazing. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, by bringing in Abraham, Paul is demonstrating that salvation through faith in what Jesus did on the cross is not only for the Jews now, which he's already said, not only for the Gentiles and for everybody, but it's been this way and will always be this way. The cross is the only way of salvation for all men for all times. The way of salvation has always been this way through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, where does it say that in the Old Testament? We're going to look at that. He just mentioned it right now. He just quoted an Old Testament scripture that showed God's grace and salvation through the cross. We have seen and heard of many revolutionaries throughout history, right? Think about it. Think about the pilgrims escaping for religious freedom. Think about the Revolutionary War fighting against tyranny. How Martin Luther King Jr., great man on a great mission. We've seen these revolutionaries. People fighting against an old way of thinking into a new way of thinking. This was the point of a revolutionary. And we often think of Jesus as a revolutionary, don't we? We've heard it said that Jesus was a revolutionary. And he was in the fact that what he accomplished caused a complete and dramatic change. It was something new in the sense that it had never happened before, but it was promised. It really isn't new. It wasn't a new plan. It was always the plan, just put forth at this time, brought to the forefront. It was not an old religion being set aside for a new religion. We get caught up thinking that way. Between Old and New Testament, remember. Old habits had to be scraped off to uncover the truth of grace that's underneath. It's an old encrusted tradition. 
being set aside for truth that was always there. Always there. Traditional law-keeping in ways that could not be commingled with grace. That's what was there. In fact, when he talks about the wineskins, Jesus, remember the wineskins, the old wineskins, we can often make the mistake that Jesus is talking about a new way of salvation. And that wasn't the point. The point Jesus was making in that scripture is that you cannot pour this grace, this salvation that's freely given through faith, and mix it with religious law-keeping. It doesn't work. It will burst. you got to go back to what was promised. See, they weren't being obedient. I like this quote by William MacDonald. He says, The life and liberty of the gospel ruins the wineskins of ritualism. End quote. It is the difference in saying that Messiah will come in the Old Testament and Messiah has come in the New Testament, but the way of salvation has remained the same. It has remained the same. So Jesus, as revolutionary, was different than all others before or after him. And how so? Well, think about it for a moment. Most revolutionary leaders sever all ties with the past and repudiate the traditional existing order, don't they? And they go on. But it wasn't so with Jesus. He upheld the law of Moses and insisted that it must be fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 5. But he did it once for all, so we no longer have to. He fulfilled it once for all, so we no longer had to. So what is Paul doing? He's shedding light on the situation. You ever watch these cartoons, or I remember these cartoons, or these things in newspapers, remember those? Or movies that show someone being questioned, maybe like in an interrogation room and the light is shining on them only, and they're sweating. Remember those scenes? Essentially, this is what Paul was doing with the gospel. The light is, has been on the cross of Christ, magnifying it. But what does he do now? He, comes, he steps back and switches on the light so you see everything. So, the, so you see that the cross of Christ was always there. It's an amazing picture what he is doing here. That's what he's doing with the gospel. So he stands back, turns on this light switch, lights up the entire room, and now his aim is to prove not only is there one God and one way he made to him, but it is one way for every human being from the beginning of time. It always has been. This is his proof. And to prove this, Paul takes them to Abram, Abraham. He takes them farther back into pre-circumcision times, before there was even a nation of Israel. Unbelievable. He takes them to the time of what? The Abrahamic covenant. Through the scriptures of the Old Testament, proving salvation is by grace alone. And look how he does it. By quoting Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed what God was going to do through a Savior, and God put that to His account, legally justified. What? What did He believe in? That's what, This is what He does. In other words, Abraham believed God's plan of salvation, and he was saved. Abraham believed in Jesus Christ. This is what he set out to prove. Apart from the cross being testified in Genesis chapter 3, and Jesus being there when 
creation is, is done in before in Genesis, this is the first time the way of salvation through grace is demonstrated to us in Genesis 15, 6. This is stating grace through Jesus Christ. We always think of it as coming in the New Testament, that it was fulfilled, it's fulfilled in the New Testament, but it's always been the plan. Salvation through grace was testified all the way back in Genesis 15, and Abraham believed in the Messiah even from that time. How is this possible? What did Abraham believe in then? How did this happen? Did somebody sit down with him and tell him, Jesus Christ, on this date, is going to do this? No. This is what happened. To answer these questions, we have to look at the Abrahamic covenant. What is that? Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. It tells us this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, now catch this, in you all the families of the earth shall be what? Blessed. What is this showing? This passage is the promise whose fulfillment extends all through Scripture, either in fact or expectation, all the way through Revelation chapter 20. All the way through from this time to Revelation chapter 20. The actual Abrahamic covenant is introduced here in chapter 12, 1 through 3. It's actually made to him in chapter 15, 18 through 21. And it's reaffirmed in Genesis 17, 1 through 21. Then guess what? It's renewed with Isaac in chapter 26 of Genesis and to Jacob in chapter 28 of Genesis. And so the Bible in many places tells us that this is an everlasting covenant. Stay with me now. 1 Chronicles 16, 14, 17. It'll all make sense in a minute. It says this, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. The word which He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant. I could take you to many more, but let me just give you one more in Psalm 105, 7 through 12. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word which He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give you the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. The exact same promise. Covenants promised, confirmed, reaffirmed. Now some have written that this promise contained three elements. Some say it contained four. Let's look at the four. It's the promise of a land. It's the promise of a nation. It's the promise of divine blessing and protection. But then there's the most amazing promise of the seed. 
of the seed. All the families would be blessed in Abram, pointing forward to who? The Lord Jesus Christ, who would be a descendant of Abraham. This is what he believed. This is what he saw. It was through this covenant that Abraham foresaw Christ. He may not have seen it clearly, but he believed the promise. And how do we know this? Because the New Testament gives us the answer. Galatians 3.8. Listen to this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached what? The gospel. To who? Abraham. Beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. What? Galatians 3.16. Now to who? Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is who? Christ. He foresaw this. This is what God was telling him. In other words, Abraham, the Messiah will come through your line. Salvation will be for all who believe. You're going to be the father of many nations, not just one. Who has a monopoly on God? They thought they did, but this proves otherwise. This is what Jesus was proclaiming himself when talking to the Jews. Remember John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was what? Glad. He saw the Savior. He saw the promise of the cross, Jesus dying on the cross. He may not have seen it perfectly, but he knew. And he believed God. He believed God. Just like we believe God, we don't always see clearly. But I love that scripture that we can go back to. I once was lost and now I'm found. I don't know all the time. This is the point. It's amazing, the salvation, isn't it? These scriptures prove that Abraham saw the light of Messiah. He saw salvation. Listen, the Jew thought Paul was speaking, uh, the Jew that Paul was speaking to, in other words, was proud to have Abraham as their father, right? We've we talked about that. Paul knew all about it. He used to be just like them. Now he's concerned for their salvation and he's trying to pull them out of that rut. Get out of the old way. Your man-made traditions, it's not that way. Why? Because Abraham wasn't even perfect. It wasn't that Abraham was so good that God blessed him. God blessed him before that, before circumcision, before there was a nation of Israel, before all of it. That's who he was speaking to, and Paul knew all about it. Here they are, these proud Jews, having this patriarch of the faith, their view is all wrong. They thought he was favored because of his spirituality and his obedience. Can we think that too? Absolutely. We can think we're so obedient that look at what the Lord's doing in my life because I'm so obedient. Man, is that not boasting? It absolutely is boasting. He is faithful even though I am unfaithful. He's always faithful, and He will see me to the end. But, oh man, my desire is to be right with Him. We can't always. But listen, they thought it was all done because of His obedience. That's our father Abraham. 
right? Because he was pious, religious, he's devout. So God favored him as a result. But it is contrary. That wasn't the way of it all. Think about Abraham prior to this. He was a pagan man. Pagan. There was no nation of Israel when this promise was given. There was no circumcision. There was no law given. So what could he keep? What what could he keep? That's his point. He can't boast before God. He's got nothing. And you have it all wrong. The only thing that was given was what? A promise of salvation through the cross of Christ to come. That's the only thing that God told him in the covenant. And Abraham did what? He believed God. We just proved it. He believed his plan and he believed his way of salvation. He believed the promise. This is why Abraham was able to be obedient and move out of his country. He wasn't obedient and as a result God blessed him. He was obedient because he believed what God was telling him. That's what brought the obedience. This is why a 99-year-old man believed God when he was told he and his wife would have children. And at first he didn't, right? But then he believed God. And then it would begin this genealogy leading to who? The birth of a Savior. This is how Abraham was saved through faith. Faith in what Jesus Christ would do. I believe that. I believe why he did it. Now we look back and we say, I believe why he did it. And what he did it for. To glorify God, to save me. And his obedience and works were a result of his faith in the Savior. The same as it is today. We don't do those things to earn our way into heaven. We don't do those things to show that we are a Christian. When we are a Christian, those things are inherent in us. This way of salvation is not only for the Jew. It's for everyone. There is one God who made everyone. There is then only one way for everyone to come to Him. That through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins. And it is not just for everyone now. It has been this way since the beginning and always will be. It is for anyone who believes in what Jesus has done. Isn't this great? I mean, it just keeps getting better. It's always been this way. Amazing. We'll leave it here. We'll pick up next time right here in verse 5 and 6. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're so good. I mean, the things that you are demonstrating through the Apostle Paul, who went up into the third heaven, Lord, who's seen amazing things that we may never see, but thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you put it on his heart to write to us so that we can continue to believe in these things today. Thank you for demonstrating that it's not something brand new, Lord. It's something that has always been. What is new is the newness of life that we have out of death when we believe in what you have done, Jesus, on the cross for us, taking on our Father's full wrath. Thank you for this way of salvation that has always been, always will be. What a sweeping statement to all other religions. Lord, we praise you, we thank you, and now go before us. We praise you in Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you guys. We'll have one more song.